0: dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones.
1: Thanks, 1940s band singer. Here's a nice shiny nickel as the tip. That's about 20 bucks in today's money.
0: Ooh, really? That's right. I wish I had some nickels from back then.
1: I mean, really? Hey, this is the hour of doom.
0: That's a joke. Those nickels would be worth still five cents. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They
1: would be worth five
0: cents. (laughs) Yes, this is the hour of doom and bloom.
1: That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a citadel of civility in an uncivilized world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show in the world about medical
0: preparedness.
1: (laughs) And who am I? Why, I am Joe Alton, M.D., that old Dr. Bones, of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy.
0: Hi, I'm also Amy Alton. I'm an advanced Registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife.
1: She's so sharp, she volunteered as RazorWire on our southern border.
0: Oh, man. That's right. I would do it. If it would work.
1: <laughs> On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, plus that no extra charge of poorly thought out thoughts of a man who at his age should know better. But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared in times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here. But first, you got to listen to this.
0: All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or
1: don't if World War III is just the roadhouse brawl to you, Bunky. But answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when times get tough? When the hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are gone, and someone you care about is sick or injured. Well, don't look at me. I'm just some old guy drooling on his shoes. It's you, boo. You and I both know that when it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff, learn some stuff, and why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy can tell you where you can find some.
0: Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net, where we have professionally custom-designed by... You know who. That's right. Medical kits, first aid kits, suture kits, dental kits, eye kits. Much, (laughs) much more.
1: Hey, I want to just mention that the Book Excellence Award winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook ranks a whopping 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, over 3,100 reviews, and still tops. On bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you're going to find the black and white version on Amazon, the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website.
0: That's right. Specially made.
1: You know, I wind up getting asked a lot by different people, just what is disaster medicine or what is survival medicine? And Is it any different from modern emergency medicine? Really, what is survival medicine? How does it differ from the kind of care you can get at the local emergency room? Now, you may think you know the answer to this question, that it's very, very simple, but it's a little more complicated. You may not have really thought about the differences in terms of, well, mindset with regards to the subject. You may not realize that it actually differs from even wilderness medicine. Routine emergency medicine is geared towards dealing with issues and injuries incurred in normal times. This might include a mishap during a wilderness hike or a trip to an underdeveloped country, and in these cases, modern care and facilities exist, but they're just not readily available. So in standard emergency medicine, the assumption is that the patient is eventually going to make their way to trained doctors and modern hospitals at one point or another. You are a temporary caregiver, responsible for stabilization and transport maybe, but not much more. It doesn't extend to the entire course of care and recovery. I May mean, your primary goal is the evacuation of the patient to modern medical facilities, even though those facilities might be miles away from where you happen to be. Once you've transferred your patient to the next highest medical resource, your duty has been discharged. You're free to go on your merry way. This is very different from long-term survival medicine. In a true collapse, there's no access to modern medical care. and There's no potential for such access in the foreseeable future. President Harry Truman used to say, the buck stops here. Well, the arrow that says here is pointing to you in this situation. You go from being a temporary first aid provider to being the caregiver at the end of the line. You're now the highest medical resource left, whether you have a medical diploma or not. And this requires a change in your entire mindset when you know there's no help on the way and the patient will live or die based on your actions. And that's the difference between our writings, our books, and things like that compared to modern first aid books, which basically are very good books, but they do not really tackle the subject like we do. Our book assumes that you're alone with limited supplies and there's no one on the way. You're going to have to deal with whatever the medical problem is pretty much from beginning to end. So what are some of the most common medical emergencies that you might expect to arise during a you-know-what-hits-the-fan scenario? First, let's talk about very basic things like dehydration due to lack of drinking water or due to maybe diarrheal disease from failure to disinfect the drinking water that's around. Of course, poor preparation of food is a big deal. It's thought, you know, that Ebola, the epidemic that occurred in Africa in 2014, was passed to humans from failing to completely cook bushmeat. They were taking these bats, fruit bats, they were cooking them over fifty five gallon drums, and they probably weren't cooking them all the way through. So this is something that you, medic, actually have to enforce good food preparation practices, good good water disinfection practices. This is part of your job description. Then there's illness related to climate, such as hypothermia due to cold exposure, or heat stroke due to heat. People are gonna be driven from their homes in a lot of situations, and the power grid is going to fail in others and in many situations, they're going to be out in the cold or out in the severe heat. I mean, down here in South Florida, it gets pretty bad in the summer. A lot of people would be dying of heat stroke if the power fails and there's no air conditioning. Uh, Orthopedic injuries from increased exertions that are needed to perform activities of daily survival. You're going to see tons of those. There's going to be sprains and strains and broken bones all sorts of stuff and you have to know how to deal with those not just to get them to the ER that's important in today's world but you need to know how to get that broken bone to heal so that person will have function in it and be able to to be a productive member of your group minor infections from lacerations or boils that if they're untreated they would possibly have bacteria enter the bloodstream cause a full body infection they call that sepsis Bacteria in the blood is called septicemia. And of course, we have to always know that there's the possibility of trauma from hostile encounters leading to open wounds, bleeding, and well, much, much worse. And there's not just that, there's all sorts of chronic medical conditions you're going to have to deal with in these types of scenarios. And it really depends on the condition. I would say maybe a type 2 diabetic might not experience a bad outcome due to the dietary restriction and physical exertion that occurs in survival settings. Certainly, if they start off obese and poorly controlled, well, they might actually not get worse, or they might actually improve in some cases out of sheer necessity. A type 1 diabetic patient, however, on insulin, they're going to have little chance long-term. We do have talk about what you can do for a period of time to lengthen their lifespan and give them a shot until society restabilizes, we hope. Of course, staying healthy in a survival setting usually involves starting off healthy. If you've got a bum knee now, well, you know, you got to use some modern technology to get it fixed before a disaster happens. If you have bad vision or you're relying on contacts or eyeglasses, well, you might consider a LASIK procedure to get to 2020. I did it many years ago, probably more than 20 years ago, and I managed to go from being really nearsighted to having the eyes of an eagle, a really elderly eagle, of course, but still pretty good vision even today. Of course, many people have chronic issues that require treatment with drugs, and those who are on chronic meds should be accumulating them so they have a surplus that they can access if emergencies prevent access to medical care. Amy's strategy in this case is usually to find out what your health insurance during normal times allows you to do to get your medicines. So every health plan has a minimum amount of time that you have to wait before you can refill your prescription. But the good news is that that is usually not 30 days. You might be 25 days, so you can go every 25 days and get your medications refilled. You should figure out what that is on your health plan and show up there at the pharmacy as early as possible every month so that you can fill up. And what happens is that you end up having a few extra pills or tablets at the end of each month. And so what happens is over the course of time, that surplus accumulates And for your situation, well, that will give you some additional time and some medicines that you ordinarily would not have gotten otherwise. Of course, it would be great to have a doctor that was sympathetic and would give you an extra prescription whenever you needed it. But honestly, in most cases, unless you have a very long, long relationship with that physician, it's probably not going to work. If you just show up at a doctor's office for the first time and ask them for an extra 60 pills of your high blood pressure medicine, well, you're probably not going to get them. You need to not just accumulate medicines, but you need to accumulate supplies. Your store of medical supplies should more than cover the amount of people that you're going to be responsible for. If you've stockpiled, let's say, three or four treatment courses of antibiotics, if you've gone through some of these companies that are, are giving them out these days, it might be enough for a couple or maybe a sole individual over time But if you are taking care of 20 people, if you're the medic for a mutual assistance group, it'll go fast, and you're going to run out of antibiotics pretty soon. Remember, most of these people are going to be performing tasks that they're not used to doing. They're going to be making campfires, chopping wood, lifting heavy loads, maybe without a hand or eye protection. You're going to see more injuries like sprains and strains and lacerations and infections burns, things like that than in normal times. You're going to need enough supplies to deal with them. And the question is, can you ever have enough medical supplies? I mean, if you're thrown off the grid for the long haul, these items are pretty much irreplaceable. Nobody's manufacturing them anymore. So it's important to have a stockpile. I see people that order suture kit for me and they order two stitches, two sutures. The truth of the matter is, is that they should order at least a box of 12. In Amy's store, if you buy 12, you're only paying for 10. So You know, you need to have enough to deal with multiple episodes where you're going to have to close a wound, perhaps. The important thing to realize is that the family medic is almost certainly going to wind up dealing with more survivors than expected. And most family medics are going to be surprised at this, although they shouldn't be. You need to make allowances for more people than you would normally expect, because I guarantee you're not going to turn away every single person that needs help. My parents, siblings, friends, and neighbors are going to show up at your retreat's doorstep, especially if they know that you can help. And the numbers add up very, very, very quickly. This is why there is no excessive amount of medical supplies that you could possibly have. Over time, they're going to be expended. But let's say for the sake of argument that you do have more medical supplies than you need. In this unlikely scenario, any excess items are always going to be very highly sought after for barter purposes. You might see recommendations to spend your money on buying physical silver and gold, but you're not going to be able to set a broken bone or wrap a sprained ankle or or eat precious metals. As things get desperate, they're not going to be precious at all food medical supplies, well, they're going to be much more valuable. Having said that, we think that you should freely offer your medical training and supplies to those people in the community who are in need, because when the community identifies you as someone who's willing to help for the sick and injured, has some skill, has supplies, you know what? You're going to become very important to that community, and they're going to expend resources to protect you. How about that? This portion of our program is sponsored by... The Talking Dogs Podcast. Join Gizmo and Slobbers, two golden retrievers from the future who, thanks to special brain implants, can talk and discuss issues that concern canines of all stripes in today's cat centric world. Left by accident in the T4000 time machine while their owner was buying space cigarettes, Gizmo and Slobbers spend their day discussing important questions like who's a good dog? Who wants to go for a walk? And who's my favorite little buddy? Plus timely topics like squirrels, evil geniuses, or just evil. Are they worse than ducks? Get your morning wolf on with gizmo and slobbers, you'll be glad you did. Available on all super futuristic streaming platforms in the fifth dimension. In a recent video, I discussed what happens when your body is exposed to extreme cold, a condition known as hypothermia, left untreated. General hypothermia leads to failure of various organ systems and even death. Besides general hypothermia, however, there are other cold-related injuries, such as frostbite and immersion foot. What causes frostbite? The body responds to cold temperatures by narrowing the blood vessels, something called vasoconstriction. Blood flow to the extremities decreases to preserve flow to the vital internal organs. And as the blood is redirected away, these parts of the body get colder and ice crystals can form and destroy tissue. Frostbite usually occurs in the extremities, but sometimes affects areas like the ears and the nose. It occurs in stages that cause more and more damage as time goes on. The first stage is frostnip. In frostnip, the skin turns red and cold and the victim experiences pain, numbness, and a pins and needles sensation. Then there's superficial frostbite or second stage frostbite. This causes the skin to lose color, going from red to white to maybe even blue. At this point, tissues are freezing and swelling may be noted. The texture of the skin changes also, becoming stiff and waxy. Although frozen, the victim may feel the sensation of heat. Actually, feels hot in the affected area. Now, what if it's even worse? In deep frostbite, also known as third-degree frostbite, both superficial and deep tissues are affected. The skin appears blue and splotchy, and circulation is blocked by clotting blood. Even after rewarming, many will develop dark, blood-filled blisters within the first 24 to 48 hours loss of sensation, malfunction of nearby muscles, these are common consequences. Although rewarming is appropriate, it may not succeed. Blue skin may turn black, a condition known as gangrene. Gangrene is the death of tissue resulting from loss of circulation. Once this happens, amputation may be required to remove non-viable parts before infection sets in. a related condition to frostbite is immersion foot, formerly known as trench foot. This condition was seen commonly in soldiers who spent long periods of time in cold and waterlogged trenches during World War I. Immersion foot doesn't freeze tissue solid, but causes damage to nerves and small blood vessels due to prolonged time in water 60 degrees or lower in temperature. Immersion is a non-freezing injury that appears like frostbite, but may have a swollen, wet appearance compared to it. Rewarming a frostbite injury can be painful. Matter of fact, it can be very, very painful, but It should begin as soon as possible in survival settings to avoid further trauma and improve the chances for full recovery. Most use warm water soaks no more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius on the extremity for 30 minutes or maybe until the skin returns to more of a red color. The water can't be so hot that it's uncomfortable when you place your own hand in it. It should remain warm, however, so replace cooling water as needed. Note that the practice of using warm soaks to treat frostbite is different from that of general hypothermia, which is best treated with warm dry compresses to the groin, neck, and armpits. In superficial frostbite, clear blisters may form in the damaged area as the patient recovers. In deep frostbite, though likely be filled with blood, the skin is going to appear bruised blue or otherwise discolored. Expect these areas to turn into thick, dark scabs. Now, some of this tissue may be non-viable and have to be removed. This process is called debridement, and that's something we'll talk about in future installments. Patients often complain of burning or stinging, which can be treated with ibuprofen at standard dosages, up to, let's say, 600 to 800 milligrams, three to four times daily. Now, this may or may not help the pain much, but will decrease the constriction of blood vessels and decrease further tissue damage. If you can help it, don't use the frozen extremity for walking, climbing, or any other activities during that time. Although many victims recover completely from superficial frostbite, others have permanent issues with pain or numbness in the affected area. Infection is a possibility and may require antibiotics. Of course, with deep frostbite, there are definitely long-term issues. Here are some other treatment tips. Don't allow thawed tissue to freeze again. The more often tissue freezes, thaws, and refreezes, the deeper the damage. If you can't prevent your patient from being exposed to freezing temperatures again, you should wait before rewarming, but not more than let's say 24 hours. Don't rub or massage frostbitten areas. Doing so is gonna cause worse damage to already injured tissue. For the same reason, prevent the victim from walking on frostbitten toes. And avoid the use of heat lamps or fires to treat frostbite. The area is numb and can't feel the frostbitten tissue, sometimes causing significant burns. There is controversy as to whether frostbitten areas should be bandaged. Some advocate placing absorbent padding between frostbitten toes and fingers. Others suggest leaving it open to air. Prevention is hugely important, so you want to wear appropriate clothing that protects your extremities, such as well-insulated boots and a thick pair of well-fitting socks. Mittens for your hands, they provide better protection against very cold weather than gloves. A warm weatherproof hat that covers your ears, it's very important to protect your head from the cold and multiple thin layers of warm, loose-fitting clothing, which act as insulation. Keep them dry and remove any wet clothing as soon as possible. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hello, citizen. Are you feeling low? Don't have it like you used to? Has your get-up-and-go, got-up-and-went? Well, consider the wholesome goodness of Prevalaxian Balance, a healthy mix of fruits, vegetables, sleep aids, and Alzheimer drugs in one tiny capsule. Made from probiotic macronutrients, which are processed down to a fine ash, Prevlaxium Balance will give you the pep you need to run that marathon and get a good night's sleep 10 minutes later. Mix with water and you can use it to seal that hole in your canoe. Prevlaxium Balance, your natural road to good health, a better night's sleep, and a higher IQ. Available wherever cure are sold. Hey, we often get messages and questions from listeners to our podcast, but we also get questions from the podcast of our good friend Jack Spirko called The Survival Podcast. Here's one from one of his listeners. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones from the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of The Survival Medicine Handbook, a designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Bradley who writes, Dakin's solution for treating ear infections. Will this be effective, used as a frequent ear canal irrigation solution? Thanks. Brad, one of the challenges facing the caregiver in austere settings is how to prevent and treat infection. Infections are going to be more likely in survival settings where hygiene and sanitation are questionable, and without advanced medical care, a bad outcome may be the end result. A simple and affordable method that was used as far back as World War I may be the answer for the medic off the grid. Dakin Solution. Dakin Solution is a product of the efforts of an English chemist, Henry Dakin, and a French surgeon named Alexis Carrel. They searched for a useful antiseptic to save the life of wounded soldiers during World War I, so they used sodium hypochlorite, household bleach, and baking soda to make a solution that had significant protective effect against infection. The chlorine in the solution had a solvent action on dead cells, which prevented the accumulation of bacteria and open wounds. Today... Dakin Solution is still considered effective enough to be sometimes used after surgery and on chronic wounds like bed sores. It's easily prepared and can be made stronger or milder by varying the amount of bleach used. Use it to clean the wound during dressing changes by pouring onto the affected area or to moisten dressings used in an open wound. We'll talk about the ear later. Here's the recipe for Dakin Solution from Ohio State University's Department of Inpatient Nursing. You'll need unscented household bleach, that's sodium hypochlorite solution, 5.25%, avoid more concentrated versions, baking soda, that's sodium bicarbonate, a pan with a lid, a sterile measuring cup and spoon, you sterilize by boiling, a sterile canning lid and jar, and of course you want to wash your hands beforehand just like you would with any medical procedure. Then... You put four cups, that's 32 ounces of water, into the pan and cover it with the lid. Boil the water for 15 minutes with the lid on. Remove from the heat source. Then use a sterile spoon to add a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the water. Add bleach, that's sodium hypochlorite solution, 5.25% as I said, in the amount needed. Pour into a sterile canning jar and close with a sterile lid label it, and store in a dark place. Now, the amount of sodium hypochlorite to add, well, for individual strengths, you should probably check out my article or video on Dakin solution at doomandbloom.net. There are a number of different strengths. Once canned, it's been said that Dakin solution will remain potent for about 30 days. For survival purposes, however, I would make it as I needed for wounds, or maybe just make a few jars at a time. Once open, you need to discard the remainder after a day or so. You may also consider Century Pharmaceuticals' buffered version of Dakin's Solution a commercial product. Unfortunately, Brad, Dakin's is too harsh for use in the ears, eyes, or nose. Better alternatives include hydrogen peroxide, carbamide peroxide, glycerin, or mineral oil, all classic treatments for hard earwax, also called cerumen, but even these can be irritating with frequent use, so use them only as needed and with caution. It can be used, however, as a mouthwash for infections inside the oral cavity but must never be swallowed. Swish around for a minute before spitting it out and use no more than twice a week. So how should the survival medic use Dakin solution on wounds? To use on open wounds, you apply once daily for mildly infected wounds and twice daily for heavily infected wounds, those, let's say, that have draining pus. Alternatively, you would moisten, not soak, just moisten, dressings used inside the wound but not above the skin level with a mild version of the solution and observe your patient's progress. I would prefer using it as a cleanser as opposed to a regular component of a wet dressing, though. Some studies show that use in this manner may be injurious to developing cells, and that's pretty important. Having said that, if you're dealing with a current severe infection as opposed to preventing one, it may be reasonable to incorporate Dakin's into the dressing. Full-strength Dakin may irritate skin, so consider protecting skin edges with petroleum jelly or some other skin protectant or moisture barrier. As time goes on, look for evidence of skin rashes, burning, itching, hives, or blisters. If irritation occurs, you've got to drop to a milder strength or just discontinue. Do not use in people that are allergic to chlorine. should be noted that not all practitioners agree about the benefits of Dakin solution. Certainly, there may be other options with regards to regular wound care, including sterile normal saline or even sterilized tap water. Antibiotics also play an important role in treating infected wounds. and A good supply is important for any medic in a remote setting. However, Dakin's is well tolerated by patients is simple to make with affordable ingredients. It's another tool in the medical woodshed for scenarios where modern medical help is not on the way. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about more than 200 off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Hey, today's youth. Do you want to get hip? You want to get down with groovy new tunes? Have you gone through your goth, hippie, rapper, and teenage vampire phases and ready to listen to something really original? Well, old Dr. Bones has put out his own brand new album of rad, dope, illin' sounds that can't be beat called Bones Tones. Be the star of the rave when you bring this collection of awesome music, and of course, all those drugs, to the next neighborhood block party. You'll hear Dr. Bones sing great songs like Like a Virgin, Funky Cold Medina, Who Let the Dogs Out, I Like Big Butts, the Ukrainian National Anthem, and the theme from Star Trek, and many more. Did these happenin' sounds sung by Dr. Bones, the world's oldest hip-hop street poet? You'll be glad you did. Bones Tones, available at music stores nowhere.
0: Hey, Nurse Amy here. I just want to talk a little bit about essential oils. And the resource for this is... Da-da-da-da-da-da! The Survival Medicine Handbook. The Essential Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. The fourth... Edition revised and expanded by us, Amy Alton and Dr. Joseph Alton. So, I usually talk a little bit about um, herbal medicine and I have discussed um, a few different herbs, um, how things are made, but I really want to go back to our book because I think we have a few more details in here. So, I'm just going to generally talk about essential oils and see if I can get to ways to extract them today. But if not, I'm going to carry this on and continue to talk about uh, things from our book um, and uh, share those with you guys in case you do not have the book or if you just want a little bit on audio. So today is page 62, essential oils. So Despite receiving education in conventional medicine, we are committed to the importance of integrating natural and and alternative medicine. And anyone who does have our book understands that throughout the book, when we can, where we can, at least insert some little bit of information about natural medicine, we do. We actually do that. Because we want people to open their minds up that we had herbal medicine before we had any of this quote, modern conventional medicine. And some of it might be hooey, but if things were used for a long time and they were written in books and they were used repeatedly, they probably had some kind of effect. So, you know, we have to give some credence to things that were used for a very long time. And there are, are things that we know that are very effective and they've actually created... You know modern versions of those, including things like aspirin, uh, which we know are effective for pain. So you know, let's just open our minds up, and and you could try things. It doesn't mean you have to completely replace medicine that's prescription or found in a store. But maybe if you have a cold, you try some steam inhalation instead of taking the um, medicine that breaks up the mucus. You know some eucalyptus oil and some water and and try steam inhalation you know maybe that works maybe it doesn't maybe the hot chamomile tea with some lemon and raw honey works to make your throat feel better or even just spoonfuls of raw honey so you know it's okay to integrate these things if it doesn't work then you know go take something that you bought at the store if, if that's not working for you but it's not a bad idea to you know For mild things, obviously, not something very serious. You're not going to fix a broken leg with a cup of chamomile tea is what I'm saying. So use your head, be logical, common sense. Yes, common sense, (laughs) which I think everyone listening to this has. Use your common sense, know when you need to go to the doctor and know when, you know, maybe you could try something at home yourself. Um, Our ancestors used medicine From the land, they would sometimes make a plot of land. You know, they had their section for food they were growing, and they also had a medicinal garden. And they knew that it was important to have that because they couldn't just go to the store and, and buy these things. They might have to grow them and process them themselves. Many popular alternative remedies use substances used known as essential oils. These liquids are called essential because they capture the essence of the plant. In nature, essential oils produced by plants serve as either an attractant to pollinator insects or as a repellent against everything from bacterial to animal invaders. Although essential oils have been used since ancient times, a chemist named Gataphosi is considered the originator of the word aromatherapy, which is a way you can use essential oils through smelling. A well-known scholar, Gadifasi was working in the cosmetics lab owned by his family when he badly burned his hand. He plunged it into the nearest tub of liquid, which turned out to be a vat of lavender essential oil. His wound healed surprisingly fast. This led him to explore the medicinal use of essential oils. During the First World War, he claimed faster healing on battle wounds with essential oils than the standard antiseptics of that era. Gadifasi's writings advanced our knowledge of these natural substances and their benefits. Unlike cooking oils, such as olive and corn, essential oils are less fixed and more volatile. That means they tend to evaporate easily, making them a favorite component of both aromatherapy and inhalation therapy. An essential oil is distilled from the whole plant material, not just a single ingredient. Therefore, each one has multiple chemical compounds that might be medicinally useful. To take an example, English lavender has about 20 different chemicals. These combinations make each oil unique. Depending on the plant, oils may be produced by the leaves, bark, flowers, resin, fruit, or roots. For example, lemon oil comes from the peel, lavender oil from flowers and cinnamon oil from bark. You might not realize it, but you've been using essential oils all of your life in soaps, furniture polishes, perfumes, and ointments. Previous generations of conventional physicians commonly included them in their medical bags, of course. Indeed, many standard medical texts of the past were really instruction manuals on how to use these and other natural products. Essential oils you'll find marketed in small brown bottles are highly concentrated, with small amounts usually dispensed via eyedroppers. You may want to know how many drops you get in certain sized bottles. An eighth of an ounce has 75 drops, a quarter of an ounce, 150 drops, a half an ounce, 300 drops, one ounce, 600 drops, of course, double, and four ounces, 2,400 drops. Essential oils aren't easy to produce without distillery equipment. Side note, if you plan to make essential oils in a grid down situation, you're going to need to buy the equipment. They are not cheap, especially if you do copper. Look that up, get the equipment if you want. If you don't have it, it's not going to be easy to uh, get these essential oils from plant materials. Some plant materials produce a great deal of oil and others very little. You would need five pounds of peppermint leaves, for example, to make one ounce of an essential oil. An entire acre of lavender would produce only two gallons. 10,000 roses are required to fill a single 5 ml bottle of rose oil. A lot of roses, wow. Given the difficulty of making essential oils, it would be wise to stockpile these for survival settings just like any other medicinal supply or medical supply. The strength or quality of each bottle of oil is dependent on multiple factors including the number of sunshine hours, soil, conditions, month of harvest, subspecies of plant, rainfall, and even the time of day plant parts are gathered. This is akin to the conditions that determine the quality of a particular vintage of wine. It also explains the, significance, the significant variance you'll see in the quality and strength of different brands or even the same one from year to year. Although there are many reputable essential oil manufacturers, use care in selecting a source. Side note I just want you to know that I really love mountain rose herbs. Love them small company, family-owned, small batch makers. They do not dilute or pollute their oils. I have met these people. They are die-hard essential oil makers. Their herbs are organic. Organic? Organic. Uh, They actually have really cool spices too if you guys like to cook. I have a lot of their spices. From a regulatory standpoint, there is a USDA program called the National Organic Program, NOP. It has oversight responsibilities for organic standards and the accreditation of organic certifying agents. The NOP also has the authority to take appropriate legal action to protect the integrity of the USDA organic standards from farm to farm, farm to market, and around the world. That source is from the USDA.gov. However, be aware of, quote, certified therapeutic or, quote-unquote certified pure claims there is no government body that certifies essential oils as therapeutic or pure those people who are saying they have certified therapeutic or certified pure most likely and you can check that out yourself have made that certifying company themselves and they own it So if you research deeply enough, you'll find out the company that's certifying their oils is actually owned by them. Take that to the bank. (laughs) Uh, I think we're going to go through real quickly ways to extract essential oils. The manufacture of essential oils is known as extraction. It can be achieved by various methods. By the way, we're now on page 63. Distillation using a still like old time moonshiners is what I was talking about buying some of that equipment. Water is boiled through an amount of plant material to produce a steam that travels through cooled coils. This steam condenses into a mixture of oil and water from which the oil can be extracted. The pressing method uses the oils, helps to produce the oils of citrus fruit, which can be isolated by a squeezing technique. It involves putting the peels through a press. This works well only in the oiliest of plant materials, such as orange skins. Materials may be cold-pressed, where temperatures are no more than 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, or 27 to to 32 degrees Celsius, or expeller-pressed, where the heat is 120 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit, or 49 to 93 degrees Celsius. There's also a maceration method. A fixed oil, sometimes called a carrier oil or base, or lard, may be combined with the plant part and exposed to the sun over time, causing the fixed oil to become infused with the plant's essence. Sometimes a heat source is used to speed the process along. The plant material may be filtered out and replaced several times during the process to manufacture a stronger oil. This is the method by which you obtain products such as garlic-infused olive oil. A similar process using flowers is referred to as infleurage. The solvent method uses alcohol and other solvents on some plant parts, usually flowers, to to release the essential oil in a multi-step process. Supercritical fluid extraction is another way to extract Supercritical fluids like liquid CO2, more commonly known as dry ice, in solid form or carbon dioxide as an atmospheric gas, are substances that at certain temperatures and pressures are used in the process that produces decaffeinated beverages, but can also be used to make some essential oils. As each essential oil has different chemical compounds, it stands to reason that the medicinal benefits are also different an entire alternative medical discipline has developed to determine the appropriate oil for a particular medical condition. So next time we'll talk about um, using them and distillation rates and maybe get into some more essential oils. Thank you guys for listening. This is Nurse Amy. I really appreciate it. Survival Medicine Podcast. Don't miss it.
1: Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden. I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us. Send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
0: Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did